For November 22nd, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 125, The Midichlorian Fallacy. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I am Matthew Rather, here with the panel, Peter Fenzel and Mark Lee, to overthink all manner of... What up? What up? What up? What up? What up? What up? Uh, To overthink all manner of things, we are the content creators, and we are the bloggers of blogs. Logging on to NewsGators and... Checking our server logs. World Lu- No, I don't know. That's- what the hell are you talking about? Do you not know that poem? It's a famous poem. What's the guy's name? O'Shaughnessy or something like that. It's called We. Mm-hmm. Right? We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams. Wandering we are the blades of ire. Never mind. <laughs> Another StarCraft uh, reference. Never mind. <laughs> it's a poem about how badass poets are. Right? Yeah. It's, uh, this, the middle stanza is, you know, with wonderful deathless ditties, we build up the world's great cities. And out of a fabulous story, we fashion an empire's glory. One man with a dream at pleasure shall go forth and conquer a crown. And three, with a new song's measure, can trample an empire down. And I would like to hear that song. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. What, what, uh, what is going on in the popular culture? Harry Potter. Potter mania. Potter all over. Uh, yes. So um, what is your favorite use of magic in a movie? The question of the week. Or a piece of popular culture. Any piece of popular culture. Favorite use of magic. This, of course, uh, involves coming up with a definition of magic. So here we go. It is, uh, it is Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going, Matt? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. My voice is a little bit hoarse today because I was cheering at the football game on Saturday. So if I seem a little bit huskier than usual, if my Kathleen Turner, inner Kathleen Turner is making an appearance, <laughs> then I apologize. Um, so I'll try to keep the energy high even if my vocal cords don't necessarily hold out. So in discussing what magic is, uh, I often think about uh, what I once read uh, was the doctoral thesis or dissertation. I forget exactly which term is used for which purpose uh, because I'm not a graduate student despite my talking endlessly about nothing. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to be mean to graduate students. They're pretty awesome. Uh, I, I also get paid marginally more for overthinking it than graduate students generally get paid for their teaching, uh, by which I mean I do it for free. Uh, and, uh, but at any rate, but at least I get decent hours. So, uh, so David Duchovny, when, before, so the story of David Duchovny becoming an actor is he was a, a scholar of English, of the English language and of English literature, and uh, he was at our alma mater uh, there, and he decided that he was going to try something in the drama department, and then he really liked it, so he switched. He, he was a PhD student in English, he dropped that, and he went to the drama school instead. Uh, and, and the reason I bring this up is that he had a pretty interesting thesis he was working on, which was on the difference between um, American and European interpretations of technology and magic. And the idea being that in European literature, uh, if you are talking about a sort of – and this is sort of historical European literature – if you're talking about a kind of uh, – uh, hidden knowledge that people don't entirely understand, most people, that its means are mysterious, its mechanisms are mysterious, uh, and it has a purpose that is somehow moral or normative, right? And normative is a word that you use to mean ought. 
anything that implies an ought is normative. And that was one of the first words I learned in college, and it's served me very well since. Uh, does this thing have an ought to it? Does it imply that there's some sort of power behind it? that has the ability to say what ought to or ought not to happen? Does it have normative force? So in European literature, no, uh, if something had, if hidden knowledge had normative force, it tended to correlate with being magic, whereas if it didn't have normative force, it tended to correlate with technology, right? Machines. So machines uh, don't have an intrinsic purpose. They do what we make them do. Uh, they, they don't have uh, a, a sort of – it's not in the nature of making the machine. Like if you make an oven, uh, there's nothing about the oven that demands that it make bread. Like any attribute of the oven associated with making bread is something that we put on top of the oven even after it's already been made. Like we, we, we sort of see the oven and contextualize in that sense. Whereas if you had a magical spell that made bread, then it's some, there's usually the spell itself like in Harry Potter uh, will say the name of bread. It'll be like, you know, pane or whatever, like in a different language and it makes bread. Um, and David Duchovny's uh, thesis was about how in American literature we often attribute these normative qualities in European literature uh, that are attributed to magic to technology. So the example of this I always think of is like the car in The Grapes of Wrath, which has this uh, sort of uh, mystical quality as it, as it carries the family to California from Oklahoma. But that is not my favorite use of magic in popular culture. And I bring this distinction up because my favorite use of magic in the popular culture does use this distinction in a fairly uh, nuanced way in its plot. And my favorite use of magic in the popular culture is the Tate Donovan, Sandra Bullock, uh, Dale, uh, Dale Midkiff vehicle, uh, Love Potion Number 9. Uh, if you've ever seen this movie, uh, this is a movie from 1992. In, have you seen this? Have anybody else seen this movie on the podcast? Have not. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so much fun. It's a great movie. So, so Sandra Bullock and Tate Donovan are, are biological researchers, and uh, they get a love potion from a gypsy. Uh, and, um, and, and they experiment with it, and they have to dilute it very heavily in order to use it, and, and it's about them sort of coming out of their shells. And, of course, they have, like, a deep relationship with one another, but then they go out and they have, like, these crazy flings and stuff, and, and the hero from Time Tracks plays, like, Sandra Bullock's ex-boyfriend who, like, finds out about the potion and comes back into the picture. Uh, and it, it's just a really, like, heartfelt movie. Now, one of the reasons I like it a lot is that is the potion – is the potion a chemical operation? Is it a magical operation, right? So there's nothing really in the script except for the presence of the gypsy woman um, that says that the potion can't just be wholly chemical. Uh, but when the, anybody applies it, um, there is a little bell that rings, right? And it's a ding ling ling, which, of course, is associated with the semantics of magic. Like, you know, waving a magic wand, a little ringing bell, that means that a magic spell has happened. So there's this cool attribute. We have these chemists who are experimenting with this compound, but the compound seems to have an express purpose, which is to, like, make people figure out a useful lesson about love uh, through a series of trials and tribulations and mishaps. Um, so it's, it's sort of bridges the gap between technology and magic in a way that I find interesting. And also one of the cool things about magic is that it, it, you know, as a vehicle in stories, it helps us bridge the gap between our intentions and the material world, which is often fairly counterintuitive, complicated. So it's like, you know, um, one of the ways I like to think about it is like, oh, I wish there was more magic in the world. There's plenty of magic in the world. It's just that if you don't see it, you're a wizard, Right. So, like, like uh, you know, if say that you have the ability to, uh, you know, titrate acids and bases and make a particular chemical change color, to somebody who doesn't know how that works, like, that is magic, uh, at least in, as far as I consider it most of the time. Uh, as long as they, if they attribute an express purpose to it and, and, and a norm to it, a normative force to it, um, they see it as magic. But to you, because you know how it works, it's not magic. In um, other words, and, the ma- uh, magnets, how do they, uh, how do they work? 
Well, exactly. The, the insane clown posse <laughs> piece is just like that. Uh, you know, when he says magnets, how do they work? Uh, it's mysterious to him, right? And we could sort of imagine that wizards, although Harry Potter doesn't depict this as, that, this way at all, that, that to wizards, magic is not mystical, right? Um, we could imagine a situation, and I'm sure it's in many, many uh, properties where it's not mystical. But the thing I love about Love Potion Number Nine, other than like the sort of fact that it was like it's like a it's like a tame sex romp that uh, mm-hmm. that has a lot of fun, but is still like watchable uh, in in a mixed company if you need to, uh, and also because it has some really quality performances from some fun people, and and just it's just it's really sincere in the way that it approaches like impulse and romance. Oh, Adrian Paul is in it too, which is freaking awesome, and he's uh, Duncan McLeod, the Highlander. Anyway. Um, all that set aside, uh, it, I think it really hits the, the spot uh, between technology and magic where we're really talking about making our actions into demonstrable reality, which is the mechanism in storytelling that magic is using to abridge. So does that make sense? Have I, I've said too much. I've overthought it. I should, <laughs> I, should, I should de-think it until I've sufficiently thought it. No, I, I guess that's probably pretty well overthought. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Does, does that sound like I've covered the topic? Absolutely. All right, good, 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 excellent. I'm a little bit. I'm also a little bit tired from a long weekend of alumni and football and dinners and football. such. What, what football game could you be talking about, Pete? Could it be the uh, the second oldest uh, football rivalry in the country, college football rivalry in the country? That I'm talking about the game between the Las Vegas Locos and Hartford that I was watching. On, no, no, no. That, that was on the Versus Network after the game that we, was on the Versus Network that I would want to watch. No, it was the Yale-Harvard football game, uh, which is, uh, I mean, I know people, we try to downplay it sometimes, upplay it sometimes, probably upplay it too much. But uh, it's, it's a big a, event uh, for alumni. It is the annual humiliation of the Yale Bulldogs by the uh, Good Harvard freaking Lord. <laughs> freaking embarrassing. Uh uh, our secret weapon, third quarter collapse, was used once again to great effect. <laughs> it, it's like, oh, like a Yale football team has appeared. Like it, Yale football team uses third quarter collapse. It is, it is super effective. Yeah, thank you. You got it. Yes, we have a negative. Yale has fainted. Oh, that's sad. Or we have a good saving throw against victory. Do you remember the times when you got to choose the college you went to? I choose you. Now the college. Now we're the Pokemon in, in, in the bucket full of balls that is the, uh, the American academic and employment system. In former Soviet Union, college goes to you. <laughs> uh, we're, 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 we're. All right. What the yeah, I'm back on the podcast. I, I missed the last two weeks. It's really great to be back on. I am not really shocked by how great the podcasts were with my blubbering removed from it. But hey, I'm back. It's a foul, let's stink the place back up. And yeah, talk, let's talk, get this place dirty. And talk about stinking it up a little bit. Yeah, I like talk things stinking. Let's do this. Oh, about Terminator. You're going to talk more about Terminator. Is, my favorite magic is Terminator. No, that doesn't make any sense at all. You should, <laughs> um, they should make a medieval Terminator movie where it's all magic and it's like he has to fight wizards. That would be awesome. <laughs> oh, like, so that actually um, uh, that reminds me of my another answer for my favorite use of magic in movies. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, my what I was going to say is simply the Force from the original Star Wars trilogy, right? Which actually speak uh, dovetails. I think it dovetails well with Pete. What you're talking about right. this difference between technology versus magic, right? Where in the first Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, the Force is magic, and then right, it's one, magic. It they has turn it moral. They, they turn it into a technology or a pseudoscience with the metachlorians bullcrap. Yeah, um, and it kind of takes uh, removes a lot of the effectiveness of the, of the force as a storytelling mechanism out yeah. uh, of, of those movies. I don't know if you wanted to comment on that particularly because I wasn't fully grasping what you're talking about the difference between technology and magic. 
Oh yeah, sure. You know, I'll use it in this example. Sure. So the Force is a sh- so the Force is a shorthand for a lot of things in Star Wars in the original Star Wars trilogy, right? Like it's a way of very quickly going over a whole lot of phenomenology and stuff. Like like uh, I'm, I've been using the word phenomenology too much this week. A whole lot of different phenomena. Right, uh, so it's like so. Luke has the good side of the force, and Darth Vader has the bad side of the force. What that really tells us is something about their characters, what their characters want, and what sort of authority uh, their place in the story gives them to get things done. Okay. And and it sort of says, well, the way that Luke lives, right? He's like a simple farmer. Uh, you know, he, he's he's a good person. You know, he's pretty he's pretty chaste. You know, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, he's like a white, blonde haired blue eyed farm boy. Any of these things can be seen as like the the. And I, I mean, I, I know that that sounds sort of casually thrown out there. I tend to think the original Star Wars is pretty aristocratic and like pretty uh, like conservative in the in its its viewpoint on people and power. Extremely. I don't think if it is that way on purpose. What? Yeah, it's extremely. And it, it takes a lot of unpacking yeah. to get there because it seems like it seems populist because it's a, uh, you know, a bunch of scrappy upstarts battling against an evil empire. But the, um, you know, a lot of science fiction is is that where there's kind of a, a ruling or elite cast, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, I mean, and I think that's sort of the difference between sort of old timey, old school science fiction, that feel, right, where it's like you're actually using scientific explanations to drive narrative. And this idea of like people who are special from reasons that are not scientific at all uh, get to use gizmos in order to accomplish their specialness. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so, so Luke has all these qualities that mean that even though it seems impossible for him to do what he needs to do, he still has the ability to do it. Now, if you were to actually show what happens, like Luke would like go the academy would like become an officer or maybe he would join the rebellion and then he would fight like a long guerrilla war and like his ability to inspire people would like continue to reinforce the power of the guerrilla war and over the course of like 20 or 30 years eventually maybe uh he would bring the empire down a notch right and then that would be affirming for him and it would be bad for darth vader but of course by using magic we can make the story go a lot faster uh and, and that's i think one of the main purposes and, and what it also does is it really really makes the 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 purposes that the characters have really pop because it says that purpose is a force of nature that is going to like move this story forward and is going to matter in this in this world and i mean i do think um you can also say well do you believe it's the supernatural um which i don't think is the important question here because i think it works either way because i think that these are just different all different ways of asking the same question personally um you know, things you don't understand, right? The supernatural ceases to... I bet you four... If, say, ghosts are real, right? If ghosts are real to a ghost, ghosts are not, like, scary. You know what I mean? Like, if ghosts are real to a ghost, ghosts are normal, right? Yeah. So, like, to, to a Jedi, the Force is normal. To, to a real Jedi, the Force is not really all that magical if they really just know how to use it. So, to get back to what Mark was saying, in the original Star Wars, it's a very moral force. The Force is a moral force. The Force is a social, a social norm and a series of social norms, and it's an extension of qualities that the characters that use it have. And it's also a way of delineating those characters from other characters who don't have it. Um, in this, by the time we've gotten to the second movie, we've like, we've like fetishized the strings of the first movie, right? Like the strings being like the mechanisms of theater, right? Like, uh, it's like, I mean, this like the strings hanging from that hold up the enterprise as it like goes past the screen in Star Trek, like the strings, the wires that you see in the theater. It's like you go to see a, um, 
a play and you like see the wires that hold up the lights and then you make a sequel to the play that's about the wires that hold up the lights because you love everything about that play like even the wires that hold up the lights but it's like um so we're, we take a closer look we fetishized and we've become obsessed with this storytelling tool that we've used to elucidate the characters and we turn the focus on the tool itself and unsurprisingly realize that it itself is not interesting uh you know what i mean like and that's sort of what it comes down to and yeah you explain it more technologically but the real difference is you take out its simplicity you make it that one step more complicated it doesn't matter why the force works if it mattered why the force works you just give them like shovels or like sticks or like some other tool to get their job done right like like it doesn't it doesn't matter in the original star wars like how the force really functions i mean it matters in the sense that it comes from nature and so you have the nature technology dichotomy that happens but like it doesn't matter, like, you do, can, can Luke seize upon quantum singularity? Like, does the Force act as an observer in, like, a probabilistic waveform? You know, like, I mean, we don't know, and it doesn't matter. Um, because the Force is really about Luke and Vader and their relationship with Obi-Wan and with each other and with the world around them. And it's not about how you move rocks without moving your hands. Right? And no, I, no, I, this is yeah. why a lot, of, a lot of very extreme fanboyism is kind of misguided, you know, because yeah. you, you, uh, you treat something that should be magic like a technology and suddenly you're applying all kinds of rules uh, or internal consistencies to it that, um, uh, that really are just not appropriate. Yeah. I mean, my, my favorite, I think the moment that I really figured this out, at least, was, was when I was walking home from school. And I think it was high school that I remember, or maybe middle school. I think it was middle school. It's like walking home from school, and I was like, man, I wish I could teleport, right? I'm thinking, I wish I could teleport. And I'm thinking, like, I wish there was some way that I could, like, exert a lot of force and just, like, be where I want to be a lot faster. And I was like, oh, I have a way. And I started running. <laughs> and it's the only uh-huh. thing that was keeping me from running home was the sense that running was, like, inappropriate or, like, not the right thing to do, right? It's like, oh, it's dangerous because the sidewalk has cracks in it or whatever. But like we often have things that are functionally equivalent to magic at our disposal that do not seem magical just because we know how they work, right? So and and so that I think that's why like ignorance of the operation of it is important to magic. Thanks, Pete. So that that yeah. said far more eloquently than I would have been able to say about Star Wars and the Force and how you look at it as magic. Um, the other thing that I was reminded of after I started talking about blabbering about Terminator again, as I want to do, is uh, strangely enough the movie Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, which predominantly. Ooh, is a I was thinking about tactic. that one. That's a good choice. Right? That's a good choice. And I don't know if a lot of people saw this, but um, at some point when you know in the lead up to the, the Terminator Salvation, I was thinking about Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and how. The reanimated uh, metal knights, their armor, their suits of armor, sort of relentlessly marching across the field and being shot by Germans to no effect, how that was uh, strangely evocative of Terminator. Um, mm. So uh, I put together, I cut together a little YouTube video sort of uh, splicing shots of that battle scene, you know, the Germans shooting the, the metal uh, knights and that not doing anything. And then the metal knights like bashing the Germans over the head. I cut that to the Terminator theme song. And, uh, you know, made sort of a bed knobs and Terminators and broomsticks mashup type of video um, and as, as a sort of an homage to this strange little confluence of pop culture. So that's a great Wait, where, piece of, where is that video right now? It's on uh, this little website. You might have heard it. Overthinkingit.com. Oh, when did you post pop- it? Have I, did I mix it? It was, this is, this it was like, ago. yeah, oh, if you okay. click on the video section of uh, the video link from the homepage of the site on the, on the toolbar, actually on any page of the site, then okay. you'll see the small collection of original videos that Overthinking It writers have done, um, including that one. Man, you know, this website has so much cool stuff on it um, that uh, I, I really – I want to spend all this time exploring it, and I'm sure that uh, – I recommend it. 
Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing is that I've realized I've mislabeled some of my pieces as video-related when they're in fact not videos. <laughs> they have videos in them, but they're not my videos, uh, like music videos. Uh, so uh, your yes. IMT no. Pain, Terminator Monster Ballad. Unless, unless, you, unless, unless you made that music video, Pete. Like I the made number- it. It, I, ma- I made it and I can break it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think it's my turn. I'm, I'm going to go old school. My favorite magic in popular culture is the transformation of bottom into an ass in uh, William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Because. Uh, go on, <laughs> continue. I think you're, are you just laughing at the name, Mark? Or <laughs> uh, uh, Both, the, both the, the figure of speech of turning a bottom into an ass, as well as the fact that Rather is again. Uh, bring up Shakespeare on the Overthinking It podcast. Drink. That's like <laughs> it's like you're bringing a rapier to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead. Um, just like a blogger to be <laughs> to bring a to bring a rapier to a gunfight. Um, <laughs> yes, I uh, I am. Um, I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the to the uh, the kind of dual embarrassment of Bottom and Titania uh, that happens in A Midsummer Night's Dream when Oberon, the king of the fairies. Um, instruct Puck, the chief henchman of the fairies, to uh, to embarrass Titania, and so he uses a love potion. Actually, favorite love potion in uh, in the culture would probably be a great question of the week one day. Um, he uses a love potion to anoint the eyes of Titania, so that the next thing she sees, she falls in love with, and then puts a donkey head on uh, the bottom, on the uh, the head of Bottom, who is this uh, you know I don't know manual laborer uh, out there in Athens, running around the forest in this um, pansexual bestial uh, orgy that happens in the middle three acts of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So uh, you know it's um, it's silliness, but. Uh, an ass, huh? Ass. He turns a bottom into an ass. It's probably my favorite. Yeah. It's probably my favorite use of magic. It's. I mean, it's pretty cool. It's interesting how much of the, how many of the terms that are used in these scenes have gone on to have very charged meanings in in human sexual politics, right? And like human sexual identity, right? Because it's funny. We like we like tittered like five or six times while you were telling that story. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think it's. I would think that it's one of those rare situations in which like. The story really is the source. Like I feel like that that a lot of not necessarily the source for all these uses, obviously, but like I think it really informs it. Like the that feel of that part of Midsummer Night's Dream is so kind of unmatched, like in its era or anything for a long time after, at least from my perspective and what I've seen. That it, I mean, it's such a such a space of imagination that uh, I'm not I'm not surprised that when we think of like you know Titania Queen or Queen of the Fairies and bottom the ass that like that sort of sense of uniqueness and and is still is still sort of there. Does that make sense? No, not quite. Not quite. Uh, just just like um, I don't know. It's it's almost like it, I, I have my my diachronic language circuits turned way up, uh, and, and I guess I'll to go through that really quickly. Uh, so synchronic and diachronic language. Is uh, synchronic is the idea of language as it means right now, right? And so language as people are currently using it, uh, and, and so this is the kind of outlook on language that says that dictionaries aren't really useful because they don't really capture the way people really use words, and any way that a person uses a word right now is what matters. And uh, diachronic is a way of looking at, at language where you know over time the way that a word has been used like continues to matter right now. Sure. So when you and, and these are not mutually exclusive; these are two two operations that are happening simultaneously. 
right? It's it's like looking at at the relativistic and, and the quantum sides of the op, of uh, operations of a system. Like they're not they can't be mutually exclusive. They exist at the same time. Yep. So uh, so I often am very sensitive to the histories of words and the, and the histories of semantics and of meanings um, when I know them because I often and I think maybe I see them more than they exist. But it seems to me that in our sort of chuckling or internal chuckling about words like fairy and bottom, um, I feel like there is a small diachronic sense of the history of the use of the word in Shakespeare that kind of filters in just something about the carnivalesque quality of it. Right. And, and like that sort of like that sense, that sense of the magical, right. That, that sort of is in those words. Um, it might be just because I know the Shakespeare, but I, I kind of think that it might have also filtered through the culture. It might also be there. Does that make more sense? Yeah, sure. The English and American culture. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it, it kind of. I, I would be curious to know if these words have equivalents in, you know, non-English or non, you know, English languages. Well, it's um, always, and, I mean, and it, you know, when you hear, when you read like newspaper articles about other, um, other countries, it's always interesting to read what their euphemisms for, you know, various, uh, you know, kinds of sexual identity or sex acts or, uh, you know, social groups of people are. Right. Yeah, you don't want to know what holding hands is in Germany. It's, uh, it's heavy duty business. <laughs> anyway, listening to Rammstein. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it is interesting because that's something that those are words that people use all the time and are very close to their hearts, and also words that the academy tends not to look at too much, and such they tend to be underregulated relative to other words. It's like when Lewis Black uh, did a routine once about how uh, the FCC was blocking all the swear words, and he's like, "Does he know people's capability to make up new swear words? Like, are they really prepared to block Cleveland Steamer like on the air? <laughs> are they putting that on a list because they'd better? And like, I'll invent new ones. You know, it's like." Uh, um, there's definitely a little bit of Noam Chomsky in that too, I think, in this, this sort of generation of language. But I've made the question less entirely too long. But no, go ahead. Well, that, I mean, it's uh, words that um, I mean, words that are sort of underregulated by the academy is an interesting uh, is an interesting category of words, isn't it? Because I mean, there's been a push, I guess, recently in you know sociology and cultural studies, and also certain identity based. Um, uh, modes of literary and cultural criticism um, to to subject those words to a level of scrutiny that they probably <laughs> don't deserve, or no, that they right. very well certainly deserve, but have historically uh, gone without. Um, yes. You know, like uh, like queer studies. I mean, and like or you know, queer studies going into exactly what the sort of euphemisms, both derogatory and celebratory, for homosexuality. Uh, are and have been um, throughout the years. You actually, I mean, there's a lot of English literature that you can't understand. And by English, I mean not Anglophone. I mean from England uh, without understanding what the, uh, uh, you know, what the pejorative words for gay um, are. Right, right, right. Because... There's a lot of English literature which uses a lot of pejorative words for gay. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're determinably calling each other sissies on that island, at least in their, oh. at least in their serious literary fiction. And uh, you By know, the way, like, this all puts an entirely different perspective on Watership Down, uh, <laughs> which, is, which, which to this day is one of my favorite books to make jokes about. <laughs> but uh, 
for for people who don't know, Watership Down is a, a novel for young adults, which uses rabbits to um, metaphorically act out a series of very obscene English sex acts. <laughs> but when they teach elementary schools, they leave that part out, and they think that the rabbits are just sort of doing it as some sort of social social allegory. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> can, I, can I just point out this may be the greatest bait and switch in overthinking at podcast I history, know, which you started out. Promise about Harry Potter. Hey, new Harry Potter movie. Then we talk about, you know, whatever it is we just talked about for 30 minutes. Well, I'll tell you what happened is that our podcast started out really bright eyed and optimistic with a childlike innocence. And then as it got older, it got darker and grittier. It got real. And Emma Thompson matured and went through puberty. Not Emma Thompson. Is that her name? No. Emma no. Thompson is, is, is Kenneth Branagh's wife. We went through maturity a long wife. time ago. Yeah, Emma Watson um, is, I think. Emma Watson. <laughs> About it. <laughs> Emma Thompson also in Harry Potter, but we did not watch her grow up during the Harry Potter movies. And, uh, and then, and then the podcast learned a thing or two about the necessity of sacrifice. And then one of the podcasters died. Oh, uh, Mark, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, oh! I, I didn't get the no, memo. No, no, it's wonderful. The listeners, <laughs> no, the don't listeners, tell, don't tell him. <laughs> the listeners love it when we spend half an hour on the question and never get to the actual. Topic. Hey guys, I got a new eye. Bullshit. I got an iPhone thing. <laughs> Never mind. That's the other thing the listeners hate is when we talk about Apple technology. Apple technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, will, I will mention Apple technology in Friday's Black Fr- Overthinking It Black Friday gift guide. Um, I will mm. mention Apple technology, but not, uh, not entirely um, uh, approvingly. Well, no. It's, uh, that is to say I will make the claim uh, that the Apple technology that I've bought this year is not the most exciting technology that I've bought this year. You want to know what is? Well, you'll have to read the gift guide on Friday. Mm. But let's talk about Harry Potter uh, okay. a little bit. When I, when I got into Harry Potter, I got into it just as book four had been published. And I, I mm. read books one through four you know, in, in one sitting. I had a really long yep. train ride. Uh, essentially, and mm-hmm. so I just kind of went through it, um, and uh, I was in I was in Europe. I was in England, and I was it was a long train ride through the Channel, and uh, then changing in Brussels and going to Amsterdam. And I um, I got the British versions. Uh, at that time, they were children's books. They were not the global media phenomenon uh, that they are now. And I, you know, and I. Got through the first one because it was a long train ride, and I thought, okay, this is okay. And then I got through the second one, uh, and it was a little better. And by the third one, I was hooked, and and it sort of came into its own, uh, you know, a little bit in the in the uh, fourth book. Um, I had the same experience with heroin. <laughs> For, <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows that's not true. I am entirely too thick set to be a heroin addict. Yeah. The, but, um, anyway. the uh, muscled, well, well muscled. Oh well, thank you, thank you very much. Appreciate that. You know, continue. Um, uh, I'm not nearly good enough at guitar to be a heroin addict. <laughs> <laughs> Those are just the ones Continue. you hear about. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, so uh, here's, oh, here's what happened with me and, and, um, and Harry Potter. Uh, I, I, after that, I bought the English versions because I was in England when I bought them all. And uh, since then, I've only ever bought the English versions of the books that have the uh, English spellings and, you know... Uh, and the English use of euphemisms for sex acts and not the American. Sort of, yes. I mean, they like in, in, in America, we call it a uh, sorcerer's stone. Right. When a bleep and a bleep bleep with a bleep. And in England, when you do that, it's called a philosopher's stone. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you, so, yeah. you, you have to remember to remove your bleep before you bleep bleep all over the bleep. 
<laughs> Which of the Harry Potter subtitles is the best sex act? <laughs> Goblet of Fire is pretty good. <laughs> Order of the Phoenix. That sounds okay. Of course, the Prisoner of Azkaban's a little too on the nose. The, the, but, uh, the Deathly Hallows is a fetish one. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. <laughs> and what's the what's so it's it? Where are they? They're they're the Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of the. Secrets. Chamber of Secrets. I forgot about that one. Oh. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time in the Chamber of Secrets, unfortunately, in a sexual context. That's when you bleep, you bleep with the bleep, <laughs> right into the bleep. Um, wow. Expelliarmus. Uh, <laughs> anyway, continue. All right, continue. Continue with your magical story that I keep cruelly oh, interrupting. Oh, and dumb so, jokes. like, just as a stupid gesture of snobbery, I would always buy the, um, I would always buy the uh, UK versions from Amazon.co.uk and wait an extra week while they got like shipped to me on a boat, you know, uh, mm-hmm. from uh, from England. Um, just so that color would be spelled C-O-L-O-U-R and center C-E-N-T-R-E. Uh, mm. that's, that's, that's all I got for Harry Potter right now. I don't know. Are there other differences between the English and American versions of the books? Like no, how not, profound not are they? I think it's just the use of, of certain words and not, all, not even all of them. Like I, I believe that bogey is rendered as booger in the American versions. And, um, okay. and this is, of course, talking about Bertie Bott's Every Flavored Beans. There's one that is uh, booger flavored. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think the Jelly Belly, when they did the promotional Birdie Bots Every Flavored Beans line, I think they did have a booger one that, that – I never had these jelly beans, but that actually tasted like boogers, which is gross. Um, and uh, – oh, I, I think Snog is still Snog. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. There, there are other Sorcerer's Stone and Philosopher's wait, wait, wait. The most. Snog, as, snog as in Stup? No, sh- Snog is not Stup. No. Shag is uh, Stup. Snog is, yeah. is to make out with. Yeah. Um, you must remember, okay. Log. A snog is still a snog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's sucking face is, is snogging. Right, Not just kissing. It has to be like a, an engorged kiss, um, as it were, like something that's more uh, – is that word even being used? It feels like it's being used properly, but probably not. I guess in this sort of situation, you just do what feels right and you hope that you're doing it correctly until somebody like tells you to do it differently. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I mean I'll, 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 before we get too deep into talking about it, I'll give you my experience with the Harry Potter books because I think it's a little bit atypical. I mean, I've seen all the movies up until this point, uh, so I'll see this next one at some point too. Yeah, um, the reason but, that we decided to talk about Harry Potter in this podcast is is that none none of the three of us have seen the current film. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, we're I, talking about it because, not in spite of the fact. Also, because the movie came out and it was a huge event, like all over the world, it made like three hundred million dollars in tickets or something ridiculous like that. Six, uh, so it's thousand yeah. million dollars, gazillion, gazillion. So my relationship with Harry Potter. Is that uh, I when I when the Harry Potter books were coming out, I still had sisters who were children. Uh, right now, my youngest sister is a freshman in college, uh, and my sisters were were straight up kids when uh, when some of these books were coming out. So Harry Potter four was the first of them I had any contact with, and the contact of it was like starting somewhere around the middle and reading it like five or six or ten pages at a time as a bedtime story every night to my sisters when I was home uh, in, the, in summer on vacations from college. Uh, now, you must imagine that using this method, getting through Harry Potter 4, The Goblet of Fire, takes a really long time, like really, really long time. So, um, so I didn't get through it. I got through maybe you know a couple, like 150 pages of the book. But it was something that I was sharing with my sister. So this put it in a very specific context. And because of this context, I never really felt – the need to go back and read them as books 
sort of setting aside the experience of the bedtime story as a different literary experience than that of pleasure reading. You know, does that make sense? I'm going to keep asking if these things that I say make sense because I feel particularly esoteric today. But, uh, but yeah, but I actually haven't read anything other than the middle part of the fourth Harry Potter book. But I spent a great deal of time, probably more than a lot of people spend reading all the Harry Potter books. That's not probably true, but like more days, right? If, from like the beginning to the end, you could read all the Harry Potter books in a much shorter period of time than it took me to read like the 150 pages or so of um, – I mean, more than that if it was 10 pages a night, but however, how much of Harry Potter 4. And that, the part that I read was the part where uh, we find out what happens to Cedric Diggory, right? And that's kind of fairly intense. Um, and then, of course, put a particular spin on that book when I got to that movie, right? And I know how that works. But so for me, I'm, I'm familiar with – I've seen the movies. I'm familiar with the kind of the, the Harry Potter paradigm and, and all the things that are part of Harry Potter and the, the associated metonymical terminology and all of those stuff. Um, but I, I haven't like sort of parsed the books and really read them and gotten down to them. So I know the plots, you know, to the extent that they were accurately reflected in the movies and Wikipedia pages. Um, and I know the characters, to the extent that they were depicted in the pages that I read versus the, um, the movies that I saw, to the extent that they're consistent across the books, which I'm not aware of. Are, are the characters pretty consistent from the beginning to the end? Does does she hold pretty true to them or do they, and I don't mean, do they change, but do they like vary wildly uh, at times? They don't, the needle doesn't really swing erratically. They develop, uh, because it's a story about, about development, you know what I mean. It's a story about the assumption right, of responsibility. Right. It is like all of these things: a story about a uh, you know a person who's destined to save the world becoming an adult. Um, right, right, right. The the problem with doing it in a movie is the problem that Pete always brings up with doing it in a movie is that you you um, you end up using that the, the the guy with the flashlight stops you and tells you that you have to leave. <laughs> That is the problem <laughs> no, with doing ahead. it in a movie. Well, that's the yeah. problem with doing it in a movie theater. The problem with doing it in a oh, movie ooh, is that the Motion Picture Association of America gives you an MP- <laughs> is NC-17 rating after like three thrusts. And our, yeah. our culture is further infantilized, though subjected to horrific violence like the you know gruesome Saw movies or The Expendables. Yep. Ah, I don't think Expendables would have been better if there were sex. I'm an American. I don't... <laughs> I know I'm free to see graphic violence, but no sex or boobs or male nudity of any kind at all. And I won't you don't see forget anybody. the men who died to give that right to me. Uh, the right, not but also to... the various committees that determine what constraints might be put on those rights at what times. Yeah. Um, hey, if you want to watch a great movie, watch a movie called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, which is about. Um, it's a bit of a meta movie because it's about the rating of it, its own ratings process, but it's also it's a documentary about uh, the MPAA, how it works, how it's worked historically, uh, what the political forces are behind film ratings, and um, you know how that how that whole thing works. And of course, it was not it was given an NC seventeen rating. Uh, wah, wah, wah. By the MPAA. Did they do it on purpose? Did they like do it as a joke? Do they put no, it like a uh, bunch? It, of the film actually aspects? includes. Clips from NC-17 movies uh, to oh. illustrate – I mean to illustrate its points, you know? Yeah. That yeah. It, and, and the nudity totally advances the plot, I swear. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I mean the point that the filmmakers made in a bunch of interviews is that we had to like – we had to illustrate what we were talking about. This is a vid- visual medium and we, we got a show in addition to telling. Like, and right like three thrusts is R and four thrusts is NC-17, you know what I mean? You can get away with right. buttocks under certain – situations uh, anyway um hey, speaking of movies that are rated nc-17 no not harry, harry potter, potter, potter and the deathly hallows while we're talking about our we're contributing our own personal relationships to harry potter 
Mine is actually almost non-existent. I think I've seen the first movie and maybe the third one in addition to that. And I have not read any of the books at all. Um, so my knowledge of it is limited to basically what I hear about from you guys and the rest of the overthinking it uh, writers on the site. And I can't really, I don't have a good explanation for sort of my lack of attention to uh, Harry Potter or why it doesn't necessarily appeal greatly to me. Um, I, I think just looking back at the sort of the history of Harry Potter and when these books came out and what like in the, what started in the late nineties and uh, the popularity picked up in the early early two thousands. Um, I don't know for whatever reason that wasn't the kind of pop culture that I was interested in. Uh, then and it kind of isn't what I'm interested in now. It's not to say that you know I I, I don't like it or I, that I didn't enjoy the movies that I saw that were entertaining. Um, I just uh, am more interested in killer cyborgs, I guess, and that's mm. my only excuse. You like technology and not magic. Ah, oh, there you go. Thank you. That actually, yes, yeah, so that that was what like, led to the question I wanted to ask: is um, in Harry Potter to tie it to this discussion we're having about technology and magic, what is, what do they identify as the source of this, or how much do they get into? The, the pseudoscience or the sort of uh, sort of rational explanations for the magic and spells that they're able to conjure. None. And I think that's a real strength of it. It is just, it is merely an ability that certain people have. Yeah. I mean, it uses Latin words. So like the, the, and the, uh, the aesthetic around it is very much, um, very much aligns magic with kind of academic learning specifically in like the humanities and sort of pre contemporary hard sciences. It's, yeah, so it's, 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 it, yeah. it's the medieval university. You know, yeah. I mean, so yeah, yeah. If all of our if all of our lives looked like Oxbridge, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, um, not Oxfam. If all our lives looked like Oxfam, they'd be working really hard uh, for some disadvantaged people. <laughs> but that would be different. Uh, but yeah, no, no. It's it's uh, it's it's interesting. It, it's interesting because um, they. It's funny because they spend so much time in the in the books and the movies, and I'm I'm guessing from the books, obviously, and I'm going to presume that what happens in the books happens in the movies, but. Um, talking about them learning magic right and they're in classes well, uh, to learn what, magic. this is the, the point i was trying to make before before i got yeah. before i got sidetracked which was that yeah. um when you do a chosen this is why the movies don't work as well as the as the books this is one of the reasons anyway and i think we can all agree that the movies don't work as well as the books do when you do a chosen person story in a book you have time to show someone trying and failing and developing capacities and kind of you can kind of meditate on what those capacities mean in a movie yeah. you have a training montage and this is the you know what i mean this is you end up taking cheap shortcuts uh, you know, because you only have two hours to uh, get from A to B. And this is one of the, the complaints that Pete always makes about these kind of chosen person stories uh, yeah. where someone is fated to, um, to do something. It's that, it's, that, uh, it's that the shortcuts are cheap. And, um, and the book, for what it's worth, the greatest virtue of the books for me is not their, their prose style, which, is, I, which got better over time, but which is in places, you know, cliche and, and a little insipid. It's, um, it's that they create a world uh, that feels fully drawn uh, pretty deftly. And, and that's done, I mean, that's done in a number of ways. One is by doing what Pete is, is describing and kind of drawing on our collective fantasy about, uh, you know, medieval universities, believe it or not. I mean, we, yeah. the culture has one. It still does has, have one that, that is waiting there to be activated. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, another is, is by pr- pretty economically kind of uh, setting up a series of rules that it adheres to, um, 
you know, consistently so that your expectations are gratified when you, uh, uh, when you read um, the books, that is, the world operates in the way that it purports to operate, and uh, and that's borne out over time, and that you know yeah. that gives pleasure, uh, that gives satisfaction because um, you make an assumption and the assumption is proved correct, and that is uh, uh, you know that is satisfying narratively. Yeah. It's interesting, of course, that it does this without – and this is an interesting note for people who are, who are interested in creating worlds like this. It sets up clear expectations for what's going to happen and how things work uh, without actually explaining or over-explaining the mechanisms by which things actually happen. Right. It, it's like you both have a sense for for what sort of circumstances are going to bring up, what sort of outcomes, but you don't necessarily know why. Um, yeah, and it's not that you want – you don't even want to know why. It, right, yeah. exactly, and that's that's the yeah. thing. Like this is this is what I call um, I call determinism in plot, which is a kind of psychological determinism, which I think we've spent some time on the podcast distinguishing from what Pete calls determinism in plot, which is a, a, a sort of pro- plot level determinism of fate. But you know um, uh, what I mean when I say it is is uh, you know I saw a crime when I was a young boy, and that's why I became a police detective. Um, it, no one cares why you became a police detective. They they only care what you do as a police detective. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean. And uh, no one cares how magic works. It's let's call it the uh, the midichlorian fallacy. Um, <laughs> you know the idea the idea that a um, a, a rational account of how th- how things came to be is uh, is preferable to just asserting that it is so and going on from there. Yeah. I mean, another great scene that feels really rotten that's like this is the scene in Avatar where Sigourney Weaver is on the spaceship and she's telling everybody there's a network of roots that are like nerves and they're like synapses. And that's how the tree of life is communicating with the Navi. And that's how the planet is really an organism. And we really have to study this. And she like spends like this, this very frenetic monologue trying to scientifically rationalize this like sort of magical thing that everybody it's is encountering. It's a network. Right? It's a network. It's like, well, I mean, this sort of shows how – first of all, it shows how the movie's kind of garbage in certain ways. But uh, I don't want to be so mean about it, but I've kind of put myself on the line for that several times already, so I have to stick to my guns. But it's not just a positive claim. It's a normative claim also. It's a network yeah. and therefore good is what she's saying. Yeah. And therefore, You know what I mean? Therefore a worthy object of studying or therefore superior to our yeah. – you know, I don't know, our crude verbal mode of communication. Yeah. Well, it's also very – which is, of course, it's also very sloppy because the very things that draw them toward the Navi in the first place are the things that they perceive as magical because they consider the explanations and the knowledge of contemporary phenomena to be somehow like, you know, making the world a worse place, right? Like, so knowing how things work, like knowing that this rock that's in the ground, like has industrial uh, impacts and potential uses, like makes the world worse than just living in harmony with it, right? It's like, there's a certain ignorance that the Navi have. It's very attractive to the, the characters who are the humans and their kind of knowledge is one which doesn't really consider itself with means very often. It just with ends. Uh, like, this is what you do in order to get this result. It doesn't really consider itself with, like, the mechanism by which this actually happens. It's, it's got this magical uh, attitude. So the humans in, in Avatar are drawn magically toward the Na'vi, but then when they're trying to convince other humans that something is worthwhile, they explain it in scientific terms. So it's like, oh, well, they're also scientifically more awesome, which is part of why the movie, why these kinds of stories have problems. I think mean, these kinds of stories are about seeing the strings and about tricking ourselves with our own stories into, into misinterpreting our own relationship with with what's interesting and exciting and with reality and all the other stuff. Yeah, it's like it's, a, it's I mean, yeah. if you consider storytelling, uh, you know, in a grand sense, as a as a 
uh, way of recording our ideas about ourselves in a, in a way that is more memorable yeah. than simply, uh, you know, declaiming what our ideas about ourselves are. I think that yeah. that Avatar is a very good movie in the sense that it uh, it it pretty directly um, uh, embodies the Fuster Cluck that is our kind of contemporary idea of ourselves. Right. That is true. As, as long as you as long as you don't think that that Avatar puts it forward in a way that is too comforting, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like then definitely, I think it definitely like hits. It's it, it's like because it's a multi hundred million dollar machine or movie that's made by a giant corporation using a lot of technology uh, that purports on the glory glories of simple natural living, right? Well, it was um, made by. I mean, look, it was made by a, a, like a lone madman alone in his. Uh... You know, alone in his studios in the, um, oh God, what is it called? Like Playa Vista neighborhood of Los Angeles. But then, you know, sold to and distributed by a, a huge... Uh, he didn't make it himself. I mean, is he using a flip book? Like, how can he... He has, he has hundreds and hundreds of people helping no, him. No, but he was... A, that, I mean, he, he is, you know, personally the, the owner of the company that is that was, that actually produced the movie and then it was distributed by Fox, right? Oh, so so his so his company did it independently of funding from uh, a larger corporate yeah, body. They got lent. These, I think he's one of these guys like like Lucas who can do it. I mean, of course, someone's going to well actually me and and find, I'm going to find out that the you know yeah. I don't know Fox sold the foreign rights, pre-sold the foreign rights, and that's how the movie was financed. And so well, at, whole, at the very least, he did. Yeah, at the very least, he got a line of credit from a bank. Yeah, sure. Right. That, right. <laughs> so it's like so it's not but like yeah, you know he's, just, he, he carved it, it into a tree. But the thing that made it into a national <laughs> phenomenon was the participation of a multinational media conglomerate that could really do a full court press on uh, yeah. on promotion and that's you know and that's everyone um, everyone seemed to think that was ironic at the time but I I don't get it like it, it strikes me that if if you want you know if the popular taste is for anti-corporate propaganda or you know purportedly anti-corporate propaganda the corporations are going to be happy to sell it to you as long as you yeah. pay them your money for it. Exactly. I mean, I think it goes back to something I was saying this earlier this this week, which is that the political implications of a work of art depend a lot on what actually happens at, as a result of it. Like the corporations are not scared that Avatar is going to like make Viacom cease to exist, right? Like like or something. Like, I mean, not Viacom Fox. That uh, it's like Fox is not scared that people are going to see Avatar and like they're not going to have any business anymore because they're going to decide to like go live in the woods. You know, like that that's not going to happen. So as such, even if the movie is you know environmentalist in a certain sense. Um, it's not actually going to have that means to an end, so it's not really hypocritical of the corporation to support it if it's going to make money, right? Because it, it does definitely still serve its agenda. Um, definitely. And I mean, let's relate this to Harry Potter, because Harry Potter has a more comfortable relationship with its distribution, um, because in Harry Potter, although there's magic, magic is very closely related to human institutions and large and old human institutions and, and like big human institutions, uh, you know, leaders that are hierarchical. Right. And, and right? In fact, it's the it's the um, uh, it's the the participation of more modern uh, human institutions like elected government. You know, it's the mm-hmm. Ministry of Magic. It's the involvement of politics that really uh, f's things up. Right, and that were things just left in the in the hand of the elite class of Jedi's? I, excuse me, you know, I don't know, good wizards, right? The yeah. um, everything would be fine. Those are called muzzles, right? They're called muzzles. No, wait, no, scuzzles, muggles. muggles. Mug- <laughs> I'm just kidding around. <laughs> They're called muzzles, right? Yes, um, wuzzles. The wuzzles are awesome, but anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, were things uh, simply left in the, ca- the the hands of the uh, aristocratic class, they would be. Um, uh, you know, all would be well, 
but it's, it's right. the involvement of more modern, you know, enlightenment style uh, institutions of, of representative democracy uh, that send everything to hell in a lot of a sense. In a lot of right, ways. right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. It's it's almost uh, it's almost Napoleonic era in its attitudes about tradition. It's a very like Edmund Burke friendly book series. It's you know this idea that like oh there's a big revolution happening that's going to make all these great things happen and you're like oh, I don't know the way that we have things working right now works pretty well like look how pretty these buildings are uh, and it's and that sort of has a certain romance to it and and that romance uh, because the connection between our ambitions and our results of our ambitions is so fractious uh, and thus the the moral authority of our first principles is so undermined by that fractiousness, then something that has lasted for a long time and done pretty okay uh, has the reinforcement of being a pretty good idea, uh, I guess, is, is the one way of sort of summing up what I get as that feeling, that kind of conservatism. Uh, the Marie Antoinette, the, like the beauty, that scene of like the beauty of Marie Antoinette before she was killed in um, The Notes on the Revolution in France uh, by Edmund Burke. Uh, is, is a very sort of quintessential moment in conservatism. And I'm talking about actual conservatism here, like the, the, the political ideology of doing things that you used to do because they used to work, and thus, like, we should hope that they continue to work the way that they used to work. Not the conservatism of, like, let's arbitrarily pick a bunch of things that are unrelated to each other and build a po- political coalition around it. Um, but yeah, like, like uh, Harry Potter is very, it's very conservative. It's very English. Uh, as well, and and if you want to think about the early nineteenth uh, century, is very formative for the sort of modern English character and the sort of the relationship between Britain and Napoleonic Europe, um, as sort of like like Britain sort of making being an empire, but at the same time also being the little guy, right? That's a very interesting relationship between sort of like underdogs and authority and aristocracy, like aristocratic underdogs, like the Jedi. Uh, that that seems to fit with the historical narrative. I don't know. I think I'm 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 rambling a little bit, but With I think the, the British main, historical narrative or the American historical narrative or both. I would argue. Well, I, I also think, and one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I and this is a huge digression, is how by identifying these things by nations with political borders, we're taking a shortcut that we probably aren't justified in doing because nations really don't. Like things are not really bound by nations anymore all that much, um, like like identities and discourses and transactions, uh, you know, political spheres of influence. Like, like so many things run across national boundaries that it's kind of silly to say, well, this is the English political narrative, this is the American political narrative, this is the Russian political narrative, Chinese political narrative, right? Like there's like a whole bunch of different narratives in in the area that's bounded by the borders of America, and the culture's so fractured. I mean, maybe at some point you had a strong enough authority and control of the discourse and you had a strong enough consensus in the people who were recognized within the frame of reference you were talking about as the authority, like all those people such that it all happens to line up so that like you're sort of, if you think about it in like the game civilization terms, like the cultural boundaries of your civilization, like match up with the physical boundaries of your civilization. I don't think we're there right now. I mean, Harry Potter is a huge international phenomenon. Right. So it, its discourse has, it, it has a character, but I don't know if, I mean, you could almost call it like Harry Potchian. Um, but it definitely is rooted to something that is called England, whatever that thing is. Um, let's go. Let's go back to talking about civilization for a moment, because that's what I. <laughs> All right, great. Can, you we, can, we, can the... you explain that why in civilization sometimes my um, that my pikemen can defeat a battleship? Is that just yeah? A... Sure, definitely. Okay, so in civilization, <laughs> no, no, I can talk about it. No, I can talk about it, definitely. So <laughs> civilization, it's it's shorthand, right? Like like civil, units in civilization are com- making engaging in combat with each other over the course of years. Right, each turn takes like years. Now, sometimes it takes a month 
right? But but turns never take like a few minutes, whereas like the decisive time in a battle might be like a couple of hours. So I always thought that even though the graphics in Civilization lead us to believe that the that the conflicts between units are sort of immediate conflicts, I always I think that it, what it really represents is the sort of longer term vying between these two military units for control of a given territory, right? Uh, and and the one assumption that it makes is that the u- losing unit is destroyed. That once a unit commits to taking control of a given territory and it fails, then it's destroyed. Now that is probably one of the big leaps that Civilization makes. That's not really historically accurate, right? Because you can commit a major military force to an area and then withdraw it and still be doing better than if you left it there to die. But so basically when you send your battleship to, uh, to like the fight the Mongolian Navy, right, <laughs> at Samarkand and the Mongolian pikemen are holding the shore um, with the horses standing <laughs> somewhere else because you haven't discovered them yet. Um, and, and, the, and the battleship is roaring in, which you're not, I mean, yes, if there are pikemen on the shore, when the battleship shows up, then like the battleship will kill them. But in the approximations of civilization, the amount of resources that the civilization has dedicated to their having being to their being pikemen around have still been dedicated in the macro sense. And somebody else, it's not the same pikeman the whole time, right? <laughs> um, it's like a unit of pikemen, and so that unit of pikemen will come back, and then the battleship will come back. And the way that the and we assume that at some point the battleship has some probability of like losing its supplies or like running aground on some rocks or getting like caught by some sort of improvised explosive device. Which even pikemen in the 15 and 1600s would have been able to make in various ways. Maybe not to punch through a steel hull, but like maybe they get on board. Like it's probabilistic. Like there's so many things that can happen wrong with a battleship. And so the moral of the story is that if you were to just send one battleship, like way off the frig to like nowheresville, uh, far, far away from home with no resupply, and like there's a whole bunch of people around it that uh, are trying to kill you. Even if they can't kill your battleship right away, like over time, there's a small probability that something terrible is going to happen and every on the ba- everyone on the battleship is going to die. And I feel like that's what happens when the battleship tries to bombard a city in civilization and loses to like a phalanx or a pikeman. It's that like the battleship is trying and it keeps killing people and it keeps killing people, but then everybody in the battleship gets influenza and like, uh, <laughs> and, like and there's no medicine. Whereas if you send a, concert, a force with many resources and many ships, like there's a small probability something will happen to one of them, but there's a much larger probability that the engagement will succeed and the moral of the story is resupply your troops pete, pete i am astounded by your ability to explain uh, <laughs> over to overthink that specific aspect of civilization now impress me even more and tie that back to harry potter somehow Oh sure, I'll talk. I'll talk about it in terms of Harry Potter. So, um, so the thing. So Harry Potter is one person, right? Um, but Harry Potter is a proxy for a general like coming of age experience, right? Uh, and, and and I mean, to he is an individual character, and he's fully realized. I, I suspect I haven't read the books, but he seems to be pretty pretty like. Um, I guess he's complex, right? He's a novel protagonist. So, so there's a lot that's going on with him, and he's meant to be a, a mimetic representation of a person. Um, but, you know, he is also, uh, you know, he's sort of an allegory. He's sort of a type. Um, he's sort of doing all these things. 
So when you talk about magic in Harry Potter, like what is the magic that Harry Potter has, right? I think that's one of the big quintessential uh, questions. Now, do you mind if we do spoilers, Mark? Is that going to be a problem? No, 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 go for it. Okay, so so here's the deal with Harry Potter and the character of Harry Potter that I think is part of this translation between the individual Harry Potter person and and the sort of like macro narrative of like what Harry Potter represents, like the battleship with influenza, right? Like like there's a lot of other things that are happening. The, the layers of complexity between the magic and the reality. So Harry Potter is protected by this magic that is like the, the love of his dead parents, specifically his mother, right, Matt? Is that, is that true? He, uh, loves that his, right? he loves both of his parents. And they're both he dead, loved- right? Yeah, but, but, but he his have, father, like, I mean, he goes through a thing where, where uh, there's like idealization and disillusionment uh, in his relationship with his father because he learns that, you know, from time to time he could, I don't know, be in a bad mood or not be a nice guy or something like that. But mom is always, uh, mom is always good. Sure. Okay. But I, mean, I thought in a more sort of like magical sense that like the magic of his parents' love, it was like in him to a degree that it like leapt out in a, in a materially influential way and like stopped he who must not be named from trying to kill him. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Or in other words, the Schwartz is in you, Lone Star. It's in you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I, I do mean that like it, it's like Pikachu's tears at the end of the first Pokemon movie. It's like, it's like there's this <laughs> affection that these people have for this character that it is complicated and it's part of the story, uh, but it has a, po- a supernatural power that is important to who Harry Potter is. Um, and I think that that's – if you're thinking about like what does Harry Potter represent, I mean that for me always – that always struck me as the one trait about Harry Potter that stayed consistent was this like s- this scar associated with the death of his parents. See, Harry Potter is sort of like a Brit – he's like a Brit teen Batman, right? Like, parents are killed by a bad guy, and he's, like, driven by this act to do something, but he does something completely different. Um, and, I mean, I think that, that when we're young and we're protected by our parents, like, that's a very attractive way of looking at the world, that the love of people has a supernatural power that makes things happen. Um, and, and I think that when we're talking about the demystification of magic, we're not talking about that doesn't exist. We're saying let's learn the intervening levels between uh, the thing that we think is magic and the effect that it has on the world, right? Uh, and so it's, it's like – so if we want to demystify magic – and this is also one of the reasons why I have a problem with people uh, – with a debate between science and religion because it's like rather than say, well, this isn't real, therefore it's meaningless. It's like why don't we act like, like – I think it's one of the essential acts of adulthood to like look at something that you think is magic – and like try to figure out the steps between the magic and the reality. And I feel like that's one of the things that adults do is like, and then we don't tell the kids about it until they're older because it's kind of unpleasant to to learn these things. Um, But with Harry Potter, I think his growing up, um, part of it is like there's this act, this fundamental quintessential existential act for Harry Potter that like causes him to exist, which is that like his parents died and, and he was saved. Right, and, and so his growing up, to an extent, is like finding out the different layers in that act. Right, like what does it mean that they were wizards? Like what does it mean that they were capable of doing the specific sort of thing? Right, the whole thing with the 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 um oh, the white stag thing is kind of like a big deal there because it's sort of when he gets introduced to that kind of power that he can use himself. What is that thing called? Um, do you know what I'm talking about, Matt? The Patronus. 
the Patronus. And again, Patronus, again, that's another like an word in Latin that refers to relationships between proxy parents and children. Um, this sort of like act of, of parentage. And in fact, like there's no more conservative relationship in the world than that of a Patronus um, with a client uh, in, in, in ancient Rome and, and such. But um, but I think that when you're talking about the story that Harry Potter is telling, like that's one way you could look at the narrative. You could, one way that like you know the phalanx beats the battleship. The way that Harry Potter goes up against he who must not be named is that he's like learning the he's learning the mechanisms and the way the things that happen in the world that like created the circumstances for his parents to do for him what they did, um, and and as such to be able to do it himself. Um, and it involves learning about his, his, his background, learning about magic, learning about interpersonal relationships and learning about love, uh, learning about danger, learning about sacrifice, like all of these things that are part of this act that's very highly symbolic. Um, and, and I think that, that that's sort of like where it all comes together. Does that make sense? It does. And, uh, All right, and we'll, we'll see what our readers think about it. If you have anything that you want to add to this conversation about – we promised you Harry Potter and we got around to it eventually uh, – about, <laughs> about the nature of magic, about uh, civilization – um, not the, uh, not the you know, global historical phenomenon, rather the video game. Um, mm-hmm. uh, about determinism and plot, again, our, uh, our favorite bugbear. Um, about the Harry Potter phenomenon and anything that we've said about it. About James Cameron's Avatar and why it's a bad movie. Uh, you can email us at podcast. <laughs> or a great movie. Com. Best movie ever. Best <laughs> movie ever. Or call us Check. at uh, 203-285-6401. Call or text 203-285-6401. One of these days we'll get around to another listener feedback episode uh you we also um we also are extremely uh extremely glad that every episode becomes such a uh lively discussion in the comments so you can uh you can come see the show notes on the website and uh, contribute your thoughts there what website you ask what's the website you should be visiting every day it's www.overthinkingit.com the site where we subject the popular culture and the, uh, the strange confluence between bed knobs and broomsticks and Terminator to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. You know, this whole conversation about magic and pop culture, we neglected to include the greatest magician in pop culture of them all, Gobbluth. That's because he doesn't do tricks. What does he do, Matt? Illusion.